I haven't met you before. My name's Jordan. I'm just a member here at Omni, and uh, Valentine is gracious enough and uh, brave enough to let me get up here and preach today. So um, thanks for Valentine for giving me an opportunity to do that. We're going to be in Isaiah today, so if you've got your Bible, yeah, <laughs> thanks, Thomas. <laughs> um, Isaiah 35 is where we're going to be at today. Um, so go ahead and get your Bibles there. If this is your first time at Omni, welcome. Glad you're here. You've actually stumbled in, uh, caught us in the middle of Advent. Again, if, if we're not familiar with Advent, um, and for those who are familiar with Advent, we're going to do a quick refresher there. Advent is the 25 days leading up to Christmas Day. And for centuries, the church has really used this time to just slow down and savor the truth that God who created all things, came down, took on human flesh, and dwelt among us. And that's powerful. And we need to slow down and savor that just as much now as when it happened 2,000 years ago. But it's also a time where the church has really just prepared their hearts to have a deeper longing for Jesus' second coming because he's coming back again. And we need to be ready for that. And that's what this season is all about. And for for. Everybody in this room, I don't know where you stand with Christmas. I think uh, some of us are in the Buddy the Elf category with Christmas. We love Christmas. We geek out about it. I'm in the Buddy the Elf category. I, I love all the lights and all the songs, all the food, all the, all the nostalgia when it comes to Christmas in our culture. Or you might be on the other end of the spectrum. You might be more like Scrooge, where you're just like, gosh, I'm sick of spending my money right now on all these presents. I am so tired of this. I've been ready for the season to be over. I'm so burnt out. No matter where you are in the spectrum, uh, I think we are all struggling with the same thing when it comes to Christmas. And the truth is, Christmas is pretty familiar to most of us if we're living in America today. Um, And when something becomes familiar to us, that becomes a pretty dangerous thing, especially when it comes to the savior of the world. Listen to what Paul Tripp has to say in his devotional, O Come Let's Adore Him, about familiarity. He says this, often when we become familiar with things, we take them for granted. When we are familiar with things, we tend to quit examining them. Often when we are familiar with things, we tend not to celebrate them as we once did. Familiarity tends to rob us of our wonder. Why is that important to consider? Because what has captured the wonder of our hearts will control the way we live. So if you're in the room today and Christmas has just become kind of common to you, or it's just kind of, you're just waiting to get through the season, or it's kind of something you bring out of the closet just like your Christmas decorations and you give a nod to Jesus, You need to take that really seriously, okay? We're gonna take that really seriously today. And in order to combat this familiarity that we have with Christmas and the Christmas story, we're gonna be in an unfamiliar passage in the Bible to most of us. It was unfamiliar to me, Isaiah 35. And the reason we're gonna be in this is because there is a glorious, glorious promise that God has for us in Isaiah 35. And promise is gonna be the theme for today. You're gonna hear that word a lot. And not only that, but we're gonna see that God is trying to tell us that he is a faithful God to keep his promise. 35, we're gonna go ahead and do something old fashioned. Let's go ahead and stand for, for God's word. We're gonna read Isaiah 35. 
I'll read it out loud. You follow along with me. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have anxious hearts, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground shall become springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there. It shall be called belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is God's word. Praise be to God. You can have a seat. So before we start really digging into this text, let's do a quick little background on Isaiah. So, um, Isaiah was written around 700, early 700 BC period. And this is way past the, the kingship of David, okay? If you're thinking the stories of the Bible were way past David and the kingdom is really jacked up right now, okay? There is a divided kingdom, civil war went down in Israel and now we've got Judah and Israel and they're at con- they're conflict with each other, they're at war with each other, and they're also at war with a bunch of other nations surrounding them. And on top of that, all the kings after David and Solomon were pretty cruddy kings. They were not great at leading God's people to worship Yahweh during this time. In fact, we see all over the place that they are setting up new idols and new altars for different isles for different nations, all while the same time, They're still going to the temple and the people are sacrificing to Yahweh. The problem is Yahweh, our God, has a big problem with that, right? Because God knows that it's not good for his people to worship other gods except for him. It's not good for us to do that. So God comes to Isaiah, who's just a prophet in the temple. He's a priest there. And he says, Isaiah, I want you to go preach, repent, repent, repent for 40 years, but nobody's gonna listen to you but go preach and tell them that I'm going to be sending judgment on Israel. I'm gonna send a nation. We know that that's Babylon and Babylon's gonna come in, take over and they're gonna strip you of everything and bring you into exile for a period of time. Pretty bad news. On top of that, we see all over the place in the first 34 chapters of Isaiah, God's not just talking to Israel. God's talking to all those nations as well that Israel's in conflict with. And God is saying, the nations, I've got a problem with you because you are also idol worshipers. You do not worship me and you are constantly trying to hurt my people. So God's going to do something about that. That's what the entire chapter 30, and it's important for us to realize that judgment on the nations. 
And it's important for us to realize that because when we get to Isaiah 35, we've got to really understand who is God talking to in Isaiah 35. So really quick, bear with me, guys. We're going we're gonna to be nerds for a couple of minutes, all right? So under your chair, there's a nerd hat for everybody. Go ahead and grab that. Put it on with me. We're going to just camp out and really do some, some contextual stuff here. So just hang tight with me. It's, it's worth it, I promise. We've got to know this because Isaiah, when he's writing this, he's all over the place. He's talking to different people constantly. And it's constantly changing between God and Isaiah. So we got to figure out who is he talking to here. And most scholars um, and commentators go back and forth on this. Some scholars, they'll say, okay, Isaiah is just talking to the nations that are not Israel. Some will say, no, he's absolutely just, he's only talking to Israel and that's it. But then there's another sect of scholars that say he's talking to both. And that's where we're gonna kind of camp out in. John Calvin was one of the guys that thought he was talking to both the Jews and the Gentiles. So that's a pretty good resource for us to lean on on that. So here are the reasons why he's talking to both nations and Gentiles, okay? And this leads us to our first point. This promise in Isaiah 35 is for everybody. The promise of God to redeem is for everybody. The reason why is that Chapter 34, here's where we get nerdy. Chapter 34 is all about the nations. God is literally saying, I'm going to turn the nations into a wilderness where nobody can dwell and only animals live there. And unlike the rest of Isaiah, where when Isaiah is done talking to a specific group of people, he clearly makes a distinguishing shift to somebody else. He doesn't do that here. You can see that from verse 17 and 34 to verse 1 and 35, he's, he just keeps going. He just keeps talking and goes straight into the wilderness here. So there's no change, which is why the nations, it's pretty clear that he's still connecting Isaiah 35 with the nations. Now, here's the other side of the factor. This passage in Isaiah 35 that we just read, is in, it's an incredibly Jewish passage. The first verse is the wilderness what was the wilderness to the Jewish people? The Exodus, right? They wandered for 40 years in the Exodus. And then the last verse, in verse 10, it's talking about Zion. And that is the city of Yahweh. That is the city where God's people come and God is at the center of it. So there's all this Jewish context in here, but he's still talking about the nations. And why is that? Why is God doing that? It's very important because he's saying, remember what I did to the Jewish people, how They were in bondage to Egypt for 400 years. Remember, they were captive and slaves there. Remember that I brought them out. I rescued them. I redeemed them. I brought them through the Red Sea. I brought them through the wilderness and into the promised land. That promise, my God is saying, my redemptive story is not just for the Jews. It's for everybody. He's bringing all the nations into that story now so that all of us, you and I, can be a part of it. How cool is that, right? How good is God to do that? So the first point is God, this promise is for everybody in this room today. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your ethnic background. It doesn't matter social class. It doesn't matter anything because God's plan for redemption is for the entire world. That's why we sing joy to the world like we just sang today, the Lord has come. So this brings us to our next point. 
We've got three total points. The promise is a prosperous future. The promise is for a prosperous future. We're going to camp out on this for a second because the first part of this, there's a part A and a part B to this. The promise of the prosperous future is the prosperity is physical. It's a physical prosperity. Now, before you start throwing stuff at me and calling me a heretic of a prosperity gospel preacher, just hold on one second. That's not what we're talking about here, all right? Let's go to verse one in Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. So you can see here that this promise of this this new birth, this new wave God is doing in his redemptive story is a very agricultural promise. There's some physical stuff going on here, but notice this, that this type of agricultural change, this should not happen. The wilderness, stuff growing there, it should not happen. If you have a different version of your Bible, the word desert, in that you might see the word Abraha. Does anybody have that in your, in your version of the Bible? That's okay. That's the actual Hebrew word for desert here, and that's an important thing, because this is where Abraha is. This should be on the screen for you. There's a map. We don't have it. That's cool. Uh, there it is. Okay, so this is the spot. Abraha is a spot in the desert, in the wilderness where the Jews were in their exile period in the Exodus. So they wandered here for 40 years after they came out of Egypt. It's a pretty harsh place. This is what it looks like. Go to the next slide. This is Abraha. That's Moses right there, in case you're wondering. I found him online. It's impossible. But yet God is saying that I will make the crocus blossom here. The crocus is this picture here. Those flowers don't grow in Abraha. That's crazy. This flower historically was associated, it, they bloomed after winter time, and it was a very harsh winter, and this was the symbol of joy and spring and happiness, a, a change of season. God is saying, I'm gonna make a ridiculous change in the future, and it's going to only be something that I can do. So here's the irony of this. So the wilderness, we know that there's a ton of irony here. Um, this should not grow in the wilderness. And on top of that, why, why can't this grow in the wilderness? Let's think about that for a second. Why does this flower not grow in the wilderness today? Why does it not grow in the Abraha Desert? Here's why. Genesis 3. Adam and Eve just sinned against God. They ate the fruit. And God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The wilderness was a place of suffering and death for Israel because we have sinned against a God who is pure and good. And we are cursed people and the ground is cursed because of it. And if you've been working in any length of time to make a living, I know a lot of us in here have been working for a long time. You definitely feel that, right? Doesn't it just feel like the world's against you sometimes? Bills just keep coming in. Food's running out in the pantry before the next check. You got something breaks and you got to fix it. It just feels like the world's working against you a lot of times. And it's because we live in a cursed world. 
so sad. But here's the promise. God's saying, I'm gonna do something about it. I'm gonna do something about it. God is promising in this text that everything in this world that has caused suffering and pain, God's going to turn it into joy and gladness and there's gonna be rejoicing. It's amazing. That's what we just sang earlier. No more let sins and sorrows grow. No more let the thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. God is promising in Isaiah 35, I'm gonna lift the curse and there's gonna be a physical prosperity in the world that's next five. He starts saying, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame man shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. And the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Did you catch that part about the burning sand and the, and the jackals? Burning sand where they walked in the wilderness that burnt their feet, caused them pain all the time. The jackals are wild beasts, dangerous animals trying to kill them. You can't go near them. God is saying, this prosperity is so good, guys. It's so good that the very things that hurt you, the very things that you were afraid of, I'm gonna turn those things into a new source of pleasure and joy. And it's going to be so good. It's going to be as if they had never hurt you before. It'll be as is, as if you were never even afraid of those things. Why not just let us kill each other and let the earth implode on itself? Why doesn't he just let it go? Because God is saying something about himself. He wants us to know two things. One, God is incredibly gracious. Is he not so gracious to get involved into our mess that we deserve to be in? He doesn't have to help us. He, but he's saying, no, I don't, I'm not just feeling sorry for you. God is saying, no, I love you so much. I wanna get involved. I wanna help. That's the heart of God. He wants to be kind to you. He wants to love you. He wants to do good to you. And he's also saying, I'm faithful. I'm faithful. Remember the wilderness. He's saying, remember how I promised to rescue the Jews from Pharaoh and Egypt? Remember how I brought them through the Red Sea in the wilderness? Remember how I brought them to the promised land through the, through the 40 years of the wilderness? He's saying, I did that. Surely I can lift this curse. He's saying, because I did that with Israel, you can bank that I'm faithful to keep this promise. But here's the thing. This promise of prosperity is not just physical, and it's not the main point of Isaiah 35. It's amazing, but it's not the main point because if, here's the thing. If all God does is change our circumstance, if that's all he does, we're still in big, big trouble. We're in big trouble. And if what excites us the most about this text is the, is the promise that God's gonna change our circumstances and everything's gonna be better, then we have a very shallow understanding of what our true need is. And we need to camp out on that. And we're gonna do that. Because the promise is much better than just changing our circumstances. That's a good thing. It's awesome, but it's way better than that. 
The promise is a promise of prosperity, uh, of spiritual prosperity. That's the next point. So let's go back to verse one. Promise is a spiritual promise of prosperity. Examine that wilderness word again. Is, I know we're, we're hanging out here, so bear with me. I'm gonna get to it. Um, Israel was in the desert for 40 years in the wilderness. Why were they there? God got them out of Egypt. So why are they spending 40 years in the, in the wilderness? Because God, though God got them out of Egypt, he had not yet gotten Egypt out of them, right? And that's the biggest deal is that we cannot go into the promised land with God if the heart of us is still worshiping all these other things that aren't God, right? That's the real problem. That's what he says in Isaiah 35, verse eight, where he says, there's gonna be a highway here in this future. The spiritual prosperous promise here, there's gonna be a highway. It's called the way of holiness. But here's the catch. The unclean shall not pass over it. The unclean. What goes into the mouth of man does not defile a man, but what comes out of his heart is what defiles a man. Genesis 3, when God put the curse on the earth, he didn't just put the curse on the earth, the ground itself. We became a cursed people. We became suppressed under the tyranny of sin by our choice. By our choice. We did that. So what's the point? Isaiah is saying, and, you, and hold on, let me back up really quick. You might be asking, okay, and I've heard this before when I talk to people who aren't Christians. They say, okay, well, if we're, we're sinners and we're, we're evildoers, I mean, God's big, he's strong, he's gracious. Why doesn't he just overlook that? What's the whole deal of like, why do I gotta be clean? Why, do I, why can't I not be clean type of deal? So that's an important question. It's not that God can't overlook sin because he actually does that, right? He does. He overlooks our sin until Jesus comes and he dies on the cross. We're gonna get to that more in a second. But it's not that God can't overlook sin. And I hear this all the time too. We're guilty of saying God cannot stand in, in the presence of sin. Like sin, like God is a frightened woman and when sin is a mouse that comes in and he's like, oh, get it out, get it away from me. He's not like that. God stands in the presence of sin all the time. God is omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He is intimately involved in all of his creation in every single one of your lives. He's intimately involved in sinners. Jesus came and dwelt among sinners. He can be in the presence of sin. That's not the problem. Here's the problem. Is that it's not that God can't overlook sin. It's the fact that we sinners cannot look at God. That's the problem. And that's what Isaiah is mentioning here. He's saying in verse two, they shall see the glory of God. The promise is about seeing the glory of God. Why is that a big deal? Because nobody has seen the glory of God ever. <laughs> the holiest guy in all of scriptures was Moses. Besides Jesus, he's the holiest. Moses, up until this point, is the holiest guy in scriptures. And this is what happened to him in Exodus when he said, God, I wanna see your glory. We're gonna to go to Exodus 33. It's gonna be on the screen. Moses said, please, God, show me your glory. And God said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Notice the connection between good, God's goodness and his glory. I'm gonna make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. 
God is so good and so pure that all things less good and less pure than him are going to melt away and vanquish like a popsicle in, in the middle of the Texas summer sun. That's the real problem. Now, that's not a super popular message today, right? It's, hey, you're all evil and you're doomed before God because you're so evil. That's not a really encouraging message, especially during Christmas. But if we're all honest with ourselves, we feel that. You know that you're not right. We feel that. We feel that brokenness in us. I feel it. I feel it all the time when I first wake up in the morning, when I'm driving to and from work, when, when I do something I know I shouldn't do. You feel that. And you might be thinking, no, Jordan, don't put that on me. Don't, don't mess with my, my vibe I'm trying to go for. That's just gonna put me down. I don't wanna spend all my life focusing on the negative stuff. If you don't think that you're not right, you're lying to yourself. Here's how I know that. Put down your phone for an entire day. See if you feel it then. Put down the TV remote for an entire day. Shut your computer off for an entire day. Put, put the drink down for an entire day. Put the drugs down for an entire day. Put the food down for an entire day. Put the podcasts down, the audio books, all the, the knowledge and the stories down for an entire day. Put the checklists down for an entire day. Put the parent hat down for an entire day, the spouse hat off for an entire day. If you put away all the things that you run to to distract yourself from that itch in your soul and you go somewhere and, and where you're not gonna be distracted, you're gonna feel that brokenness. Guarantee it. And you actually might do that for clean people. It's not for unclean people. So you're probably like, okay, I get it. How do I get clean, right? How do I become clean? Now, let's not make any assumptions here because we know Jesus is the answer for everything. But we, we need to understand that when Isaiah wrote this, he's talking about a way. It's a specific way. And in order to really know if what way he's talking about, we need to explore, okay, has he used that word anywhere else in this letter, in this book? In this book? And he does. Isaiah 40, verse 3. This is the verse that Isaiah says about the way. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway of our God. Now, if you've been in church for any length of time or Sunday school, this might sound familiar to you because it falls up and it's fulfilled in Matthew 3. It's gonna be on the screen here. This is Matthew 3, verse one. In those days, John the Baptist Good old John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and this was what he preached. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. What our brothers in the Old Testament knew in part and looked forward to, we now know in full that this way he's talking about is prepared by John the Baptist and John the Baptist tells us what the way is. It's one word, repent. If you are not a Christian in this room today, repentance literally means you reject 
everything that you run to to be your source of salvation except for Jesus Christ. You reject yourself as your own savior, the whole be the best version of yourself message that is out there today and all the self-help stuff that's out there. It's a bunch of crap. And I can say that because I'm a millennial. It's a bunch of crap. Be the best version of yourself and that's how you're gonna be able to be right. Like that's never done anything for anybody. It's not going to do anything for you when you stand before a holy God. And it's not just rejecting yourself, it's rejecting every other false God that the world talks about out there. And it's clinging to Jesus, trusting in him and worshiping Jesus alone. That is what repentance is. And if you're a Christian in the room, you better not blow this off either. Because that's the whole point Isaiah is making in chapter 35. He's saying repentance is not just how you get on the way. Look what he says. It's for those who walk on the way. It's not just how you get on the way, it's how you walk on the way. In fact, the observation we can see here in verse eight is that he's saying that those who are clean are those who repent. Those who are not clean don't repent. When's the last time you've repented of sin in your life? How does your repentance look on a day-to-day? It's not complicated. That's why he says, even fools, if they're fools, they shall not go astray. It's not, you don't have to be a genius to repent. That's the good news for all of us because we're not super smart people, but um, maybe you are, but I'm not. Um, So it's, it's not complicated, but it is essential to the Christian life to repent of our sin. And why is that? Go back to Christmas time. We are in an incredibly dangerous season as Christians, right? I mean, there's so many things right now grabbing for you and I's attention, our affections. They're not bad things either. Gifts, family, food, holiday, cheer, all that stuff. But it's a distraction from what is really the only thing that's worthy of our worship because none of that stuff is worthy of our worship. And none of those things love you like Jesus loves you. They're not worthy to be worshiped. They're not worthy of all your heart's affections. Jesus is the only thing that is worthy of our worship. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're probably like, Jordan, I thought you said this was a spiritual prosperity promise. It sounds like a spiritual downer promise (laughs) type of deal. Well, here's the reason why you have to deal with this. The bad news about being unclean. The good news of Jesus and the good promise of Christmas and in Isaiah 35 will never be good to you if you do not know how deep the depth of the bad news is. If you don't know how deep and unclean you really are in comparison to a holy God, you'll never know how, you'll never explain part. He says, if you repent, if you wrestle with what's wrong with your heart, if you do that, here's what I'll do. Verse 10. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. God is promising that if you repent, if you repent of all your things that you spend more of your affections on than Jesus, if you repent and turn away from that, you turn to Jesus, he's going to give you joy. There's more, there are more 
books on happiness and joy and documentaries on joy than ever before in the history of our world because our world is constantly seeking for joy and they're never gonna find it unless they repent and they turn to Jesus. They're never gonna find it. All right, so now we're in the good part of it, right? And I'm gonna have to skip one single part. We're gonna go to the last piece here. So this promise is a spiritual promise. We know the promise is for everybody. And here's the last and final part. This promise is true. It's true. The Jews read this scroll of Isaiah 3,000 years ago. And for 700 years, they were praying, asking God, please, when is this time gonna come? When are you gonna come and give the blind sight? When are you gonna come and unstop the ears of the deaf? When are you gonna come and make the paralyzed leap like a deer? When are you gonna make the, the mute sing for joy? Please come, come, come. 700 years later, Luke gives an eyewitness account in Luke 7, verse 20. Men from John the Baptist came to Jesus and said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who's to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who was not offended by me. When Jesus did these miracles and Luke recorded it and John the Baptist heard this news, you better believe that they were thinking of Isaiah 35. You better believe that because it's true. This actually happened and... It blows my mind when I talk to a bunch of people. I have conversations all the time. I work in downtown Dallas. And just the, the, the wide range of just people, some people don't even think Jesus actually existed, first and foremost. It, that's crazy. If you think that, you are in the minority of every historian in the history of humanity. Like there is so much evidence that Jesus actually existed. There's more evidence of his existence than Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar combined. There's more. He's act, he actually walked on this earth. And here's why that is so important for us to wrestle with this season of Christmas is because if Jesus actually existed, we cannot treat him like every other person that's ever walked. I, Jesus was a great teacher. He's a really good man. He was those things but that's not all he was. There's the evidence and the, the eyewitness accounts of this. We cannot put him in that category. There's only two categories for Jesus Christ. It's either he is Lord of all things and you get everything out of your life and you put him at the center of it and he's your only object of worship in your life or you reject him completely. Pick one. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground. Do you believe this, is act, this actually happened? That's the question of Christmas. That's what Christmas should cause us to do every single year is heart check us. Do I really believe Jesus is who he says he is? Or is he just something I pull out like my decorations every Christmas? 
How familiar are you with the Christmas story this year? Don't, don't get too comfortable with it. Don't get too familiar with it. So here are the three things we take away from this. First, let us caution us to not get too comfortable with Jesus. Look at your joy in your life. Is your joy low? Maybe you're trying to find it in the wrong places. If, if your joy is high, maybe examine where is that joy coming from? Am I getting that from other things that aren't Jesus? And then look at your repentance. Look, are you checking your heart? That's the first thing. Second thing, let this passage woo you to a savior who loves you. <laughs> this gets me every time. The verse where he says, they shall see the glory of the Lord. Unclean people like us, we're gonna see the glory of the Lord. How can that be? God knew that we would never be able to look on the glory of God and live. It would be too overwhelming for us. It would be too much. We would, it'd be, it would be like us killing ourselves because we know how bad we are in comparison to God. But God is saying, I love you so much and I want you to see my glory that he comes. He comes in the most humbling and approachable way ever. He comes as a baby. There's nothing more approachable and gentle and kind than a baby. And I've got a baby. He's not perfect. But babies, they let you, you hold them, kiss them, that's our God. He's that kind to us. He wants to meet us where we're at. Let that soften your heart this morning. And thirdly, let this be a reminder that God always keeps his promises. He's faithful and he always keeps them in Jesus Christ. If you're doubting God as being a faithful God, sorry, if you're doubting that, this Christmas, look at Jesus Christ. He's a real, he's a real person. He was God in the flesh and he still is. Look at him. The past three weeks, we've been going through the entire Old Testament showing how God has been faithful throughout the entire Old Testament. He was, Jesus kept the promise of crushing the serpent's head in Genesis 3. The promise to Abraham of making his name great among all the nations is kept in Jesus Christ. The promise to David, look at Jesus Christ, who is the glory of God that is seeable to us now. Look at him in the manger. Look at him as he's fulfilling this promise of Isaiah that he's saying, I'm coming, I'm gonna transform and I'm gonna lift the curse from the whole earth. I'm gonna, produce, I'm gonna put spiritual prosperity in your hearts. Look at him as he hangs on the cross for your sins. Look at him as he rose from the dead. Look at him in Revelation chapter seven that he's coming back again. This is where we're gonna end. This is the future that we get to look forward to. Jesus is coming. Revelation seven, verse 15, therefore they, that's all the saints, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne 
will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. How good is that, guys? Let's pray. take a moment if there was anything that was convicting or encouraging just linger on that truth just thank God for showing you that Spirit and through his divine word. Jesus, we we marvel at you today. Though our marveling might be imperfect, it may be weak, it may be divided right now and conflicted, but you're so good and you're so kind and you're so patient and gracious to us. When we look at you, no matter how imperfect it may be, let that be an encouragement to you that you are pleased. You're pleased when we turn or when we seek and ask you to help us to turn from the things that we worship other than you. You're pleased because you're moving in our hearts. You're doing a work in us. We praise you for being faithful to your promises that every promise that is in the Old Testament, you kept, you fulfilled it, and every promise of what lays ahead in the future, you're going to do. Let us never doubt. Strengthen our faith, Father. And let us worship you, the only one worthy of our worship and our affections. In us, change our hearts. Do this in Jesus' name.